0: blessed to have you all here today we're going to go ahead and jump right into the word this morning so i'm going to go ahead and pray if you'll bow your hearts with me and get right back into the word father we thank you for this day thank you lord for who you are thank you for loving us thank you for sending your son into this world lord two thousand years ago to take on flesh and blood just like us to die for us on the cross and to rise again on the third day Lord, we thank you that there's believers all around the world today celebrating Resurrection Sunday, the day that Christ rose from the grave. And Lord, we thank you that we don't only have to worship today. We can worship you every single day in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship you, trust in you, cry out to you, Lord, at all times, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you love us, knowing that you have a plan for us. So, Lord, would you be with us this morning? Would you open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth? Would you help us set aside, Lord, any distractions, anything that would get in the way of us growing in our relationship with you, growing in our love for you, growing, Lord, in holiness and in the truth of your word. So bless this message, Lord. Encourage your church. Edify us. Strengthen us. Unite us in the faith. May we go away from here, Lord, blessed and as lights of this world shining forth brightly in this dark world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's message is The Resurrection of the Son. Go figure. The Resurrection of the Son. We did a little four-part series. We started about a month ago, or four weeks ago, with the giving of the Son. We looked at the testing of the Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about last week the crucifixion of the Son and didn't even scratch the surface as to all that God was doing at the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And today we're looking at the resurrection of the Son. Without any of these components, the giving of the Son, the testing of the Son, the crucifixion of the Son, the resurrection of the Son, without any of these, Christianity crumbles. Christ had to come into the world. He had to take on flesh and blood. That's Hebrews 2.17. He had to be tested to prove that he was the perfect sacrifice for sins. Matthew or Hebrews 4:15. He had to die on the cross. Jesus told his disciples, "I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die and I will rise again." And of course, his disciples did not understand that. Matthew 16:21 and there must be an empty tomb. 1 Corinthians 5:17 if Christ didn't rise from the grave Christianity is false we're still in our sins and our faith is worthless there must be an empty tomb there must be a resurrected Christ if Christianity is true I mentioned a college professor that I had last week I didn't have him last week I mentioned him last week it's my professor maybe 12 years ago in college I don't know where time's going feels like a couple days ago but Around 12 years ago, I had this professor. He was the on the staff at Cal Lutheran University. He was like in charge of the religious department, in charge of all the other teachers. And this is what he said. I'm not going to quote him because I don't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said, "If Christ's bones are still in that grave somewhere in Jerusalem, if we could somehow verify." that Jesus Christ died and is still there. His bones are still there. He says, that doesn't change my faith one bit. Is that the testimony of Scripture? By the way, this is the same professor who said, I don't know who Isaiah 53 is written about. And many of those on staff said the same thing. It's called progressive Christianity. Really, it's called not Christianity whatsoever. They're just cutting up the Bible, taking from it what they like and taking the other parts and just discarding them. That's really what it is but he said it's no big deal if there's no resurrection I'm okay with that I still have faith listen to 1 Corinthians 15 17 if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless if this isn't true the testimony of Matthew Mark Luke John Paul and so forth then your faith is in vain, worthless. The Greek word can be translated useless, futile, amounts to nothing. Put your Bibles away, go home, and go get on with your life is basically Paul's argument. He argues this in 1 Corinthians 15. Argument ad absurdum. I think that's the Latin phrase. He's telling the Corinthian church who is contemplating whether or not there's a resurrection from the dead and he's saying, really? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then you're trying to say that Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, he says in chapter 15, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, our preaching is in vain. Every time we get up and preach, Paul's saying, it amounts to nothing. We're false witnesses of God, verse 15. Those who have died believing in Jesus actually perish, verse verse 18. And verse 19, we are of all men most to be pitied if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. We are of most men to be pitied. Why? He goes on to say in verses 30 through 33, I die daily. I'm fighting these wild beasts in Ephesus. He's saying, I'm going through all of this for what? If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, it's all meaningless. All the sermons, all the singing, all the trials, all the hardships, all the pains and sufferings that believers go through clinging to Jesus trusting in Jesus for what he did for us his death burial and resurrection Paul's saying it's all meaningless if the bones are still in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem and Jesus of course would be a false prophet he said I am going to Jerusalem not only to suffer but to die and to rise again on the third day Paul uses this word appeared four times in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared, Paul says in verse five. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. He goes on to say he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom still remain until now. When Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthian church, many, if not most, of those 500 were still Alive, Those 500 witnesses, some had perished, some had died, not perished and gone to hell, but some had died and gone to be with the Lord. He says, he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and he appeared to me also. They weren't secondhand witnesses. This wasn't something they heard about. This wasn't something that was passed down to them. This wasn't something that they had to even believe in or have faith in. This was something that they saw, handled, touched they saw Jesus he appeared to them this was the rock solid fact that started the early church the resurrection of Jesus Christ Jesus appeared to them and they couldn't stop talking about it go figure there's billions of people now that claim to be Christians around the world what is this what is the best explanation for christianity exploding in the first century and still today spreading all around the world but that jesus rose from the grave it's this testimony it's this fact that the disciples the apostles and the early christians sealed in their own blood they were willing to go to death for that which they saw Acts 1, chapter 8, the resurrected Jesus Christ gives his final admonition before ascending to the Father. If you remember, Peter's like, is it at this time that you're going to restore Jerusalem, Jesus? Is it this time you're going to knock out the Romans and set up your kingdom, and we're going to rule and reign with you? Is it right now? Because we're ready to do that. Peter was still, even after the resurrection, and the disciples still confused. Jesus said, no. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even unto the remotest parts of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1.22, if you remember, Judas, at this point, after betraying Jesus, Scripture says that he hung himself, fell headlong a field was named after him the field of blood he was set aside the son of destruction they needed to fill that seat who are they going to fill that seat with it says in Acts 1.22 that they wanted to choose someone who was an eyewitness we're going to fill this seat with someone who was an eyewitness someone that saw the life of Jesus someone that knew that he died and someone that saw the resurrected Christ that was a prerequisite to fill that apostolic apostolic seat so they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection i want to take you on a quick little journey through the book of acts i want to share some different scriptures about the apostles and the faith that they shared in jesus and the fact of the resurrection starting in acts chapter 2 verses 23 and 24 here's peter and some of these verses I'll kind of summarize and others I'll quote in their entirety. But here's Peter in Acts chapter 2, this Pentecost sermon. Jews from all over the world, Jews from different, different nationalities, they're mentioned there, they're listed because they're speaking in tongues. The apostles are when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And these Jews are saying, what's going on here? The apostles are talking in all these different languages, these different tongues. And Peter gets up And it's Peter's time to shine, so to speak. It's Peter's time to share a message. And what message do you think Peter is going to share with these unconverted Jews? These Jews that perhaps fear God but don't know about Jesus and the resurrection. This is what Peter says in verses 23 and 24. You nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again. Acts 232 this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. He goes on to say that this is how you can have forgiveness of sins. Jesus did what the law could not do. He could free you from the bondage of sin and of death, boldly proclaiming the resurrection. Throughout the book of Acts, they don't say it's a high probability that Jesus rose from the grave. We really believe it. It was passed down to us. We heard it. No, You nailed Jesus to a cross and he rose again. We are witnesses. You get to Acts chapter 3. This lame beggar who it says was lame from his mother's womb. He's outside of the temple. He's begging for money. I love what Peter and John tell him: Silver and gold, I have none. But in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. We don't have time for other things. Stand up in the name of Jesus and walk. You want money? I'm going to give you something greater than money. I'm going to heal you. People start gathering around. They say, wow, this is an amazing miracle that, you, that Peter just did. Peter goes, I need to give credit to God. What does Peter preach to them? Acts three fourteen and 15. But you disown the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. He's going to keep going back to the resurrection. God used these miracles to point to Christ and him being raised from the dead. Remember, this is Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one that was scared, the one that was in the house locked up as Jesus was being crucified, fearful, afraid. Now the Holy Spirit's upon them. Jesus said, this power will come upon you. You will be my witnesses. And they are boldly proclaiming the message. And you get to Acts chapter 5, And now the persecution is coming. Satan doesn't want the gospel to spread. He doesn't want people to know about the resurrected Christ. So the religious leaders call Peter before them and say, You need to stop doing this. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. You need to stop preaching this message. Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross, and we are witnesses of these things. You can flog us, you can throw us in prison. You can threaten to kill us. These are the things that we are going to proclaim until our dying breath. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. We're witnesses of it. Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 41. Some say it's the first Gentile believer, Cornelius, a Roman centurion. He feared God. He was giving alms to the Jewish people. They respected him. He didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So what does God do? He sends Peter on a mission. Peter, you need to go get the gospel to Cornelius and his family. Cornelius is so excited when he sees Peter that he bows down and worships at Peter's feet. Acts chapter 10. Peter says, get up. I'm just a man like you. I'm just a messenger with a great message. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all these things that he, that's Jesus, did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up, up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Jesus wanted them to know that He truly rose in flesh and blood. If you remember the story in the gospel letters, Jesus said, give me something to eat. First, he goes right through the walls, showing he can do whatever he wants. But then he says, look, put your hand in my side, Thomas. Don't be unbelieving, believe. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. But he's eating with them. He says, give me some fish. Give me some food. I want you guys to know without a shadow of a doubt that I have risen from the grave in bodily form. And that's what Peter says here. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the first 10 chapters or or so of the book of Acts is Peter mostly preaching the faith, the gospel, what he saw, Jesus risen from the grave. Acts chapter 9, Paul comes on the scene who saw he's going to hunt down Christians in Damascus. He gets these letters from the religious leaders you know the story right jesus appears to him saul saul why are you persecuting me saul falls to the ground he's blinded ironically saul is going to damascus to bring christians back bound to be killed most likely tortured paul says elsewhere i was trying to cause them to blaspheme i hated the way that's what it was called not christianity at the time It was called the way I hated the way so much I was trying to exterminate it. And so here's Paul on the way, Saul at the time on the way to Damascus, and guess what? Instead of bringing the Christians back, he's led by the hand to Damascus. He's led by the hand to this man Ananias, and God tells Ananias, you need to pray for him and be there for him, and Ananias baptizes him, and the whole story changes after that says, right after that, Paul couldn't help it. He went right into the synagogue. He began preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Acts chapter 9. Radical transformation. Here's the guy that's supposed to be going there to persecute Christians, and he's going and proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Amazing. You get to Acts chapter 13. It says, the Holy Spirit set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. They go to this city called Pisidian Antioch. It's a city in modern-day Turkey. Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue, and this is what Paul says in verse 30. God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, he raised up Jesus. Verse 34, he raised him up from the dead. Verse 37, but he who God raised did not undergo decay. And he starts quoting them Old Testament passages. Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 16. Verse 10, where David says, he will not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Paul's pleading with them. Jesus isn't in the tomb. He's not undergoing decay. Look, this was prophesied over a thousand years ago. He has risen. And then you get to Acts chapter 26. And I'm just giving you a couple of them. There's more throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26. Paul's almost done with his ministry. He's almost to Rome. If you remember, the Jews wanted to kill Paul. They actually formed this oath, right? We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink until Paul is put to death. We can't have this message spreading because if this message spreads, everyone's going to believe in it and they're not going to come to our temple anymore. They're not going to give money to us anymore. They're ruining our power structure. Even if it's true, I don't care. That This is what the religious leaders were saying when you read the Gospels. So we must wipe out Paul, Peter, all the apostles. We must put an end to this. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, he used that citizenship wisely at times. And so one of these kings said, okay, Paul, we're going to bring you back to Jerusalem to go testify in front of the religious leaders. Paul knew if he went back they were going to slay him. He says, nope, I'm not going back. I appeal to Caesar. If you're a Roman citizen, you were to have a fair trial Paul says I deserve a fair trial what they're saying is not true they're slandering me so I appeal to Caesar I want to go to Rome I want to see Caesar to, him, who's, to his face and tell him exactly what's going on here perhaps he really wanted to preach the gospel to Caesar if you read Philippians chapters 1 and 2 particularly chapter 1 he says the whole Praetorian guard has heard of the gospel he goes to Caesar He's preaching the gospel. He says the furtherance of the gospel is happening and I rejoice in the book of Philippians. He got to Rome and he got to shine the light of Christ and the resurrection. That's the mindset we need to have. Acts 26:23. Here's Paul before King Agrippa and the governor Festus. He says that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles before Paul could probably finish the sentence. This is what it says in verse 24. Festus yells out. This is a Roman governor. He yells out at Paul. You are out of your mind. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. You're out of your mind, Paul. What is Paul's response? I am not out of my mind. I utter words of sober truth. This has not been done in a corner. This wasn't done in a corner. 500 witnesses, the word's spreading. You guys know what's going on here. To which King Agrippa says, in a short time, you, may, you might con- convince me to become a Christian. The Greek is a little hard to translate. Some commentators go back and forth on what exactly is going on there. Is King Agrippa actually going to become a Christian? But he's saying, "Wow. Wow, Paul, you're pretty convincing." And then the story ends. They get up. I think Festus says, "Man, if he didn't appeal to Caesar, maybe we could have let him go." And that's it. But they don't repent right there. They don't believe. They create excuses. "You're out of your mind. Your learning has driven you mad." There's overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who truly want to see. That's what Jesus said throughout his ministry. To those who really want to see, to those who have have ears, let him hear. Then Jesus would share. Do you really want to hear this message? Are you really willing to hear the message that I'm about to share? And many people don't want to hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At least they don't want to truly submit to jesus as lord some in our day will tip their hat to the resurrection because it's almost culturally relevant so to speak it's like in the day of constantine finally christianity was spreading all over the roman empire that constantine a roman emperor said we're going to make christianity the official religion yeah when it's the popular thing then we'll go with it so some people today are like oh it's the popular thing jesus died and rose again okay but do they really submit to God and his word? Do they really submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ? But yet, even some, like my professor in college and many in the quote-unquote progressive Christianity religion, whatever you want to call it, will fight against the resurrection. I was even looking up articles this morning of pastors and different traditions like the Lutheran tradition and others who will say, well, it's just... It's a mythical thing that happened. You know, we need to be resurrected in our life, so to speak, in that we need to live differently and give food to the poor. And who, it's, a good, it's a good figurative story. Is that what we just read? Just a figurative story? Can we really do that with the scripture? A resurrected King Jesus requires submission, requires obedience, requires humility, requires us to say, no, I'm not the God of my own life. Jesus, you are God. I submit to you. So, some of these excuses are, let me give you nine, the stolen body theory. Here's some excuses that scholars, people that have studied the Bible for years have even come up with to say, no, Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Perhaps this is what happened. The stolen body theory. The the disciples stole the body at night. Yeah, that's what happened. They broke past these Roman guards who were trained to kill and just grabbed Jesus' body. And even if they were able to do that, are you going to go around sharing that Jesus rose from the grave and give your life for a lie? Of course not, if that's what happened. Believe it or not, some of these scholars and people with PhDs and smart people Intellectually speaking, still believe in today. The swoon theory. Jesus fainted on the cross and later woke up in the tomb. He got a little sleepy on the cross. you know, He got a little tired. Those nails really hurt. He was losing blood. He, he fainted momentarily. But in that tomb, man, he woke up. It wasn't really a death. It's the swoon theory. Foolish. Here's another one. The hallucination theory the disciples hallucinated after jesus appeared to them they they were seeing things they they really wanted him to rise from the grave and they they saw him and they started talking to each other and they all started believing it and then we wrote then they wrote the book of acts and just boldly proclaimed it after here's another one the mistaken identity theory someone who looked just like jesus was crucified and they thought it was him some of these i'm not going to comment on copy of the pagan myth theory that's the New Testament writers were copying some of these pagan myths of a dying and resurrecting God. I once saw a debate with a Christian and a actually a guy who spoke at my college who claimed to be a Christian. His name was his name's Dan Barker. He's now the I think chairman of the Freedom of Religion Atheist Foundation. And in his book, he wrote a whole book on this. This is his claim that the pagan myth theory. Th- The New Testament borrowed from the pagan myth and the Osiris and some of these Egyptian gods and see they tied it all together and did that with Jesus. And the guy that was debating him, a Christian said, I'm going to use that book in this debate. I want to show you some of the errors and he stood up during the debate and said, you cannot use that book. You cannot quote me on this book. And he's like, it's your own own book. I'm going to cite you and I'm going to refute it. And he made a huge stink about it and wouldn't even let this debater, this Christian debater. That shows you how embarrassed they are. Maybe it sells books, but of course it's not true. How about the wrong tomb theory? The women went to the wrong tomb. Oh, they were so sincere that's early Sunday morning. They just went to the wrong tomb and saw that it was empty. Okay, I have three more. Twin theory. Jesus' identical twin went to the cross. That's another one that's out there. I'm telling you, some, of, some scholars actually believe these things. Look up Bart Ehrman, who I quoted last week, who is regarded as one of the top New Testament critical manuscript tradition scholars in the world. He at one time, if he still does not, believes this. That, oh, it was Jesus' twin, and they thought it was Jesus, and there's, there the story goes. If you reject Christ, if you reject truth, you'll believe absurdity. You have the alien theory. Jesus was an alien who had advanced technology and beamed himself out of the tomb. These are literal theories. Unbelievable. And the last one, the contradiction theory. This is one of their favorites. See, the Bible contradicts itself, so therefore Jesus didn't rise from the grave. So they will pick and they will prod and they will see whatever they can find in Scripture. They will do whatever they can to say, I don't want to believe in the resurrection. Oh, so Luke says there's one angel and this one says there's two angels. So see, that's a contradiction. Well, the one gospel doesn't say there couldn't have been two angels. It's just recording from their vantage point one part of the story. They're not contradictions. They're just reasons for people who don't want to believe, who want to live in sin to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They don't want to be accountable to God. That's really what's behind it. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 28, I want to read you the account from Matthew's perspective. Matthew, a tax collector, turned Christian. Jesus called him one day, went right up to the tax booth, and said, Matthew, come follow me. Matthew got right out, followed Jesus, wrote us this gospel letter. This is his account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15 you're actually going to see one of the theories listed in this account, believe it or not. Some of you that know this account will know which one I'm talking about. It says, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. Stop right there for just a second. Don't look down. Don't read the rest of the story. The guard went and reported all that had happened. So if you're awake for the last 11 verses, what happened? The stone was rolled away. The angel came down. The guards shook with fear. They became like dead men. The tomb is empty. They reported this to the religious leaders. The same chief priests, the same scribes, the same Pharisees, all those that were on the council that wanted this secure, this grave secure, those that went to Pilate and said we want to guard on this gr- over this grave. We want to make this secure as possible because they said Jesus is a deceiver and he said that on the third day he will rise from the grave. And we want to make sure that the disciples don't go and steal the body. We want to make sure that This doesn't happen. So put a guard, secure it, and in the last chapter, Pilate says, okay, you got it. Send the guard. What do you think the chief priest did? The guard went and told them that an angel came down from heaven. There was a severe earthquake. They saw the miraculous power of God. You think the chief priest believed? I would share this passage when I was a chaplain at the rescue mission. Guys coming off the streets don't really know the scripture don't have faith, some of them. And I'm, I would say, what do you think is going to happen? And many of them would say, I think the ch- chief priests would believe after this. I think for sure they're going to hear the testimony of these guards and believe in Jesus and believe in the resurrection. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ear, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. There's the theory, the stolen body theory. Money will get you a lot of things in life, right? Never ultimately buy you peace, joy, happiness, eternal life. But isn't it interesting the one who wrote this part of the story is Matthew. As I mentioned, Matthew was a tax collector. Who knew the power of money in one's life better than Matthew? Mark, Luke, and John don't record the end of the story here. They have a different vantage point. Just like Luke records Jesus sweating as if it were drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew here, I believe, is showing look at the power of sin. Look at the power that money and the love of money can have in your life to where instead of believe this message, the guards were witnesses. Witnesses of what happened, just like the women. So I have three points from this passage. Number one, I want to look at the importance of the first day of the week. Number two, I want to look at the indescribable power of God. Number three, I want to look at the irrational enslaving power of sin the first day of the week chapter 28 verse 1 here's these women they're coming to bring spices some commentators said they weren't sure that there was a guard there they were hoping maybe that they could get into the tomb they weren't expecting resurrection the disciples weren't expecting resurrection they're going to anoint Jesus's body with spices perfumes it's the third day Remember Lazarus when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave? They said his body's starting to stink. It's it's decomposing, Jesus. Well, it's the third day here. And they're thinking, man, as time goes on, his body is starting to smell. We're going to go ahead and bring some spices to the tomb. It's early in the morning. It's on the first day of the week. Today, Christians around the world still meet on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Here we are today. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it was on the first day of the week where the Apostle Paul was in that upper room preaching a message, breaking bread with the disciples, like an early church service. If you remember that story, someone fell off the house. Paul went down, healed him, rose him back up, and then he kept preaching, it says, until midnight. The services were much longer back then. Don't worry, we'll be done in a little bit. See some tired faces. Back then, Paul's like, this is an all-day church service, okay? Hours and hours and hours. First Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, Paul says, set aside money. Set aside, put aside and save as you have prospered. Revelation 1, 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying write in a book what you see he received the book of Revelation on the Lord's Day according to the Clark commentary the Lord's Day is the first day of the week it's observed as the Christian Sabbath because on it Jesus rose from the dead therefore it was called the Lord's Day and has taken place of the Jewish Sabbath Sabbath throughout the Christian world If anyone asks you why do you meet on Sunday, it's the morning, the day of the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Some of you have perhaps heard of the Didache, the early Christian teaching and doctrine. It's a manual on Christian practice in the church, written around 70 to 100 A.D. Many place it right around the first century. Chapter 14, chapter 14 of the Didache says, "But every Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread." And give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. Offer your lives to the Lord. Sacrifice yourself to him. Come together on the Lord's day. Break bread. Have church together. So here we are, like I said, 2,000 years, years later on Sunday, worshiping the Lord. Point number two the indescribable power of God. We saw that in verse 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Here's these rough and tough Roman soldiers trained for battle, trained to kill, ready to guard and defend with their lives. They shook for fear and became like dead men. It's been said of Roman soldiers that they were to march 20 to 30 miles during their training. Carrying anywhere from 60 to 90 pounds. According to a PBS.org article titled Soldiers, Roman Soldiers, quote, soldiers were rigorously trained to march long distances, fight in precise formations, and kill expertly with all the weapons they carried. This wasn't like your modern day security guard who might have a little mace on him or as I mentioned to my wife last night, Paul Blart Mall Cop, which she didn't know what I was saying. I kept repeating it. I said, this is not Paul Blart Mall Cop. Well, I have to wear a mouthpiece to bed now because I grind my teeth. So just a little more to that story. So she really couldn't understand what I was saying. I said, have you heard of Paul Blart Mall Cop? (laughs) And she goes, what are you talking about? And I'm like, it's in my message tomorrow, okay? It's a movie, isn't it? Didn't we see it like 10 years ago? It's the picture in my mind that came to me of the exact opposite of the Roman soldiers that were there at this tomb. This isn't some guy with a go-kart or a golf cart riding around with some mace and got scared. These are Roman soldiers, experts in killing, and they're shaking in fear like dead men. Imagine them on the ground just seething. Maybe they're like a possum just acting dead Okay, my wife's gonna get on me later for sharing that. Sometimes I share too much. But these guys are tough, right? And they're made little wimps. And yet some of the some commentators actually believe that this is the same guard that was there at the cross. If you remember, the Roman soldiers were dividing up Jesus' clothing. They were casting lots. They were mocking Jesus. One of the soldiers put a spear in Jesus' side. Matthew chapter 27, verses 36 and 54 says, they were watching him. These soldiers were watching him on the cross. They were keeping guard of him. Some commentators believe Pilate commissioned the same guard to the tomb. And most likely that's what happened. We don't know for sure, but it could have been. So here were those mockers. Here they are on the floor acting like dead men in fear of this angel. Isaiah 2:17 says the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Matthew 23:12 Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Also translated, his Messiah. It says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cards from us or cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. These soldiers were terrified. God laughs at rulers, at people in authority, at those that, they, that think they have power. As Jesus told Pilate, you have no authority but that which has been given to you from on high. Yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting. So God laughs, and as we see here, the soldiers were the ones that were brought low. Yet the, an- the angel has a message. Okay, ladies, he says, it's time to talk to you. The women are there, the humble, meek women, and the angel talks to them while the men are on the floor. And he says, do, do not be afraid. Jesus has risen. Go quickly and tell his disciples they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. So women were given a prominent role, as we talked about last week, in the birth, in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus. God exalts the humble. Point number three, the irrational enslaving power of sin. The women weren't the only witnesses at the tomb. There was other witnesses. Who were the other witnesses there? The guards that we talked about. Verse 11. Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. The word reported means to announce, to declare. We have a message. They were probably all shaken up, stunned, and they proclaimed this message to the religious leaders. It says that there was a large earthquake and that the angel rolled away the stone. This was everything that they relayed to these religious leaders. It's almost crazy to believe that that's how the story happened. Who wouldn't believe that testimony? It's no wonder why in Matthew chapter 23, an entire chapter is devoted to Jesus rebuking and calling judgment down upon the religious leaders. They were to be shepherding Israel. They were to be caring for God's sheep, God's chosen people God calls Israel the apple of my eye ever been poked in the eye God's saying you mess with my people it's like poking me in the eye and these religious leaders were to care for Israel to shepherd them to protect them and instead Jesus says you devour widows houses he calls them hypocrites who shut off the kingdom of heaven from men and don't enter in yourselves He says, you make converts twice the sons of hell. He says, you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You're blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They're all about the intricacies of the law. I was thinking about this driving home the other day. Speed limit in our neighborhood's 20. I think it should be 30, 25 at least. I did get pulled over by a police officer. Thought I was going right around the speed limit. He gave me a warning. Thankfully, that's good to know here in Idaho. Not they don't give as many tickets. I think hopefully, so I need to slow down, right? But it just made me think. Okay, what if my wife's in labor? What if, what if I'm bleeding out and I need to get to the ER? Am I gonna? Am I gonna be like? I'm gonna drive twenty. You know, I'm I can't break the law. I'm bleeding out. I'm about to die. I'm just gonna go twenty because I'm I'm a man of the law. And maybe it's a weird analogy or illustration but this was going through my mind as I was going home maybe it was a justification for me to speed but I wasn't bleeding out but the point being these religious leaders were like that You didn't, we are by the letter of the law no exceptions and Jesus is saying there are exceptions there are and many Jesus I think would do it on purpose on the Sabbath day he would heal people right in front of them it was as if he would go to those who were hurting and needed help or healing right in front of the Pharisees and the religious leaders to show, look, no, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath was made not for you guys to abuse it. It was made for rest. You guys are turning this whole thing upside down. And then he talks about David going into the temple and getting the showbread. That wasn't meant for him, but he was in need of bread. He was on the run from Saul. And Jesus quotes that passage to show them, look, there are times where, yes, it is the law. To go back to my illustration, like, yes, the law is 20 miles per hour. My wife needs to get to the ER. God understands that. There's exceptions. Forget what made me think about that. But that is the way these religious leaders were. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs outside appearing beautiful inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness they're serpents brood of vipers jesus said in matthew twenty-three thirty-three, how shall you escape the sentence of hell he goes on to say oh jerusalem jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her how, how often i wanted to gather your children together As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, you were unwilling. Behold, your house will be left to you desolate. History tells us in 70 A.D., Jerusalem came crumbling down. The temple was destroyed. Remember in Matthew 24, the disciples look at Jesus and they say, What beautiful stones! What an amazing temple! Jesus said, Not one stone will be left upon another. Then they say, What? when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then you get Jesus as he explains some things that were fulfilled in 70 AD and some things that still need to be fulfilled. The Romans came in, they ransacked Jerusalem, overthrew the temple. History tells us hundreds of thousands of people died. Josephus says around 1.1 million people died. Teenagers were enslaved. People were paraded through the streets and mocked and killed. It was a horrific time. Judgment came down upon Jerusalem. And Jesus prophesied this because these religious leaders were unwilling to accept him as Lord and Savior. They were unwilling to believe in the resurrection of Christ. So the temple was destroyed, and their power structure was decimated, and they were no longer offering their sacrifices. Jesus said, no, I am the ultimate sacrifice. God will not be mocked. Galatians 5, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. The guards knew Jesus rose from the grave. The religious leaders knew Jesus rose from the grave. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It was the irrational, enslaving power of sin. Jesus said in John 5, 40, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They saw his miracles. They knew Jesus even rose Lazarus from the grave. But yet, it says in John chapter 12, they formed a band together and tried to put Lazarus to death. As well anything that was encroaching upon their power structure their authority their love of money their enslaving their enslavement to sin they wanted to destroy but not all religious leaders rejected Jesus who took Jesus down from that cross Joseph of Arimathea which the scripture tells us was part of the religious council Nicodemus who was a Pharisee and leader of the Jews who wrote half the New Testament a Pharisee who was was a persecutor of the church who became Paul the Apostle Paul not all of them rejected Messiah not all of them rejected the resurrection praise God for Acts chapter 6 verse 7 The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. See in the book of Acts as the word of God was spreading many of these religious leaders put their faith in Jesus. They believed in the resurrection. Some of them sure it cost them a lot. They had to give up their pride. They had to give up their possessions. They had to give up a lot of what ruled them which was sin and the power of the flesh but they gave that up for Jesus Satan can't fully stop God's work he can put up speed bumps and roadblocks hindrances distractions but ultimately Christ prevails that's the message of resurrection Sunday you can seal the tomb you can put the entire Roman guard in front of it it's no match for the power of God And that's the world today. People are scheming and plotting and planning. People in authority that think they have so much power doing all sorts of wicked things behind the scenes. Some of it gets uncovered, as the scripture says. Those who do these secret things, it will be uncovered. We even saw some of it over the last couple years with the abuses of power and all the sin and all the wickedness that went on during COVID. The more you read into it, And continue to read into it. There's a lot of wicked things even in that. But no one else can save but Jesus Christ. Muhammad, many people follow. Billions of people are Islamic, follow a false God, a false prophet. Muhammad died, he can't save anyone. He's still in the grave, or whatever's left of him. And Joseph Smith, same thing. And Confucius and Buddha, any pope or saint or guru. Whoever it may be, they're dead or will die not to rise again. Jesus is the only one that defeated death to never die again. Tear down this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. Scripture says he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was who he claimed to be. He did what he said he was going to do. He conquered the grave. He's ruling and reigning. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. And he said, all authority all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me he said i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will not die or he who believes in me will live even if he dies jesus said do not be afraid i'm the first and the last the living one i was dead and behold i'm alive forevermore i have the keys of death and of hades romans 10:9 here's our promise if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved believe that Jesus is Lord believe that he is master believe that he rose from the grave and as the song says because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives you can embrace life You can embrace the trials. You can embrace the suffering. You can embrace the hardships. You can embrace whatever comes your way because the tomb is empty. Jesus conquered the grave. He's ruling and reigning. The question for us today, is he ruling and reigning in your heart? Or are you like the religious leaders who said, no, I will not submit to that. I'm going to follow my own pleasure, my own flesh. I'm going to be enslaved to sin. Millions of people are hearing resurrection Sunday messages And they could even tip their hat, as I mentioned earlier. They could say, sure, I believe all that. The question is, are they transformed? Are they changed? And as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. The laws can't save you, Nicodemus. The Old Testament can't save you. Moses can't save you. All your knowledge and learning can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. That's the message for today. Jesus rose from the grave and we will rise with him one day. My prayer is that everyone here believes in him and will be saved. Amen.